history of the medium which you've just heard the fall guy was tv legend lee major's return to prime time after the end of the six million dollar man and his less than stellar attempts to become a movie star now i love me some lee majors but even i struggle to remember his movies steel agency or killer fish Majors is one of those actors that gets a lot of grief for his acting ability, but the guy has a likeable, laid-back charm and an incredible work ethic that appeals to people across the board. He comes across as a guy's guy, someone you'd like to have a beer and watch a ball game with. He's generally regarded to be a bit of a looker in his day, though, resembling a young Elvis Presley when he first started out, and he appealed to women who liked a bit of rough. I know my nan quite fancied him. He's also paid his dues, appearing on TV in major and minor roles since the early 1960s. 
Major started his career in bit parts before landing a series regular gig on The Big Valley, which ran from 1965 to 1969. He then fell into the guest star ghetto before landing another regular role in the short-lived The Virginian from 1970 to 1971. He slotted in guest appearances in Marcus Welby MD and Alias Smith & Jones, alongside another regular gig in Owen Marshall Counselor at Law from 1971 to 1974, before landing his career-making starring role as Colonel Steve Austin in the TV movie The Six Million Dollar Man in 1973. Viewers were instantly taken with Major's underrated performance as an astronaut who was rebuilt using the then-new technology of bionics, and the success of this original telefilm led to two further bionic outings in 1974. Success breeds success, and the ratings for the three movies saw a series being rushed into production in early 1975, a gig that kept him busy and made him globally famous. The Six Million Dollar Man's bionic run was successful for five seasons, until, in 1978, the axe fell on the show due to dwindling ratings. The Fall Guy debuted in 1981, a scant three years after the end of The Six Million Dollar Man, and was a career high for majors. In addition to being a successful return to television for the man who thought he'd be forever typecast as Steve Austin, the show was a massive hit, blending a high-concept premise with action, humour and likeable characters. Majors plays Colt Seavers, a name my nan would forever get wrong, referring to him as Colt Stevens for the entire run of the show. Seavers is a Hollywood stuntman who moonlights as a bounty hunter when money gets a little tight or the stunt work is slacking off, which, fortunately for us, the viewer, was a weekly event. This was a genius premise from longtime TV producer Glenn A. Larson, as it allowed Majors to tap into his Hollywood connections and friends list for guest appearances, and allowed the producers to raid the stock footage library for stunt work they could repurpose for any given show. Colt is aided and hindered by his cousin Howie Munson, played by Douglas Barr. Munson is a relative of Colt's, a nephew I think, and Colt is paying for his college education for reasons I don't quite recall. Munson arrives on Colt's doorstep in the pilot episode, stating that he's quit college and wants to be a stuntman like Colt, something that doesn't sit well initially, but is all but forgotten after a few episodes. Jodie Banks, played by Heather Thomas, was Colt's protégé, a young woman who is also learning the ropes of stunt work off Colt. Thomas was many a young man's introduction to their sexuality, but her relationship with Colt is actually rather sweet. There's never a hint of impropriety, rather Colt seems to have a big brother relationship with Jodie, whereas Howie tended to rub Colt the wrong way. The other main cast member changed over the years. For the first year, Joanne Flug played Samantha Big Jack, who cajoled, bribed and blackmailed Colt into going after any number of small-time hoods who jumped bail. She was replaced for seasons two through four by Marky Post as Terry Michaels, and subsequently by a succession of different Bales bondsmen in season five, the show's last. Being a Larson show, the premise borrows liberally from other sources, be it Burt Reynolds in Hooper or Peter O'Toole in The Stuntman, but the bounty hunter angle was quite new to television at that time, with many people not knowing what it was or even what a bounty hunter actually did. It sure sounded cool though. Being a show of the 80s, it was small on plot, character motivation or any real drama, and high on action, humour and stunt work. Majors actually preferred his work on this show to his career breakthrough as Steve Austin, feeling the character of Colt Seavers was warmer and more likeable as a result of the humour prevalent throughout the series. Colt didn't take himself terribly seriously, and neither did the show. 
as with the best of the Larson Sausage Factory, being willing to toss a knowing wink towards the audience when things got a little bit too silly, went a long way in keeping the viewers on side. As with all shows of this vintage, Colt had a cool vehicle to tool around in, crash through walls and jump over other cars. In this case, a 1980 GMC K25 wide-side truck, although, as with BA's van in the A-Team and Starsky's Torino in Starsky and Hutch, the make and model could change between shots, depending on what the producers needed it to do in any particular scene. The Fall Guy was a hit from the get-go, and by the time the third season rolled around in 1983, the show was a top 20 smash hit. The series was sold around the world, and over here in the UK, picked up by the ITV network, which gave it an unprecedented primetime and network slot, instead of being left to the whims of regionalisation. Season 3 would see the series' highest ratings, and this was achieved by mixing Major's likability with a dash of old Hollywood class, as the guest star list looked like a who's who of old Hollywood. Major's connections brought in the likes of David Carradine, Tab Hunter, Roy Rogers, Cassandra Peterson, Priscilla Presley, old Bond girls like Britt Eklund and Martin Bezik, Lana Wood, Tom Selleck, Farrah Fawcett, Richard Burton, and, before they were famous appearances from Jonathan Frakes, Michelle Phillips, Forrest Whitaker, and Eric Stoltz. Majors even roped in his old bionic chums, Richard Anderson and Jennifer Darling, for a guest spot. Which leads us to this episode. The first one of season three, The Devil's Island, written by Lou Shaw and directed by Daniel Haller. Opening like every other episode of The Fall Guy, Colt and Howie are performing a stunt with Jody calling the shots. This is a dangerous parachute and bike stunt, presumably robbing footage from other TV shows and films. As with all Fall Guy stunts, it was in no way an accurate representation of how films are actually made, as Colt and Co. tended to perform their stunts in one take, no matter how many camera angles were needed, as miraculously the one camera we ever saw, normally the same footage every week, managed to capture all the action with nary a problem. As ever, the stunt goes awry, but it all turns out okay in the end. The stunt work and stock footage are fine, but it's really the music that makes this work, even if it does have the sound of a Battlestar Galactica offcut. This is none too surprising when you realise that the music for this show was created by Stu Phillips, who also composed the memorable themes for Battlestar Galactica. Following the traditional Fall Guy template, the opening stunt is followed up with a scene with Terry arriving to give Colt this week's assignment. Here's a clip. Now what are you dreaming about? Well, I was dreaming about a boat, a big marlin, sun, and a lot of cold beer. Mm-hmm. You failed to mention women. Well, now you know how tired I am. Hi. Hey, don't you ever knock. I hate rejection. Good. Don't ask me to go anywhere. I only got a month before they need me on that picture. I just want to show you something. Mary Connors. So? So she's touring Mexico. Good for her. Yes, but bad for me. She skipped out on bail, and I've got a bundle riding on her. Terry, Mexico is like a big country. Oh, yes, I know that, but I know exactly where she is. See, her car broke down, and the mechanic had to send up for a new engine, and so I managed to trace the order. Yeah, well, how's that song go? I got my bag, got my reservation. Um, that's William Farrell. He was accused of misappropriating millions. And that guy there is his right-hand man and all-around thug, Fred Dole. Now, Mary was arrested as an accessory to the swindle. She was his fiancée. The government wanted her to stand witness against him. Uh, did she? 
Uh, no, she didn't get the chance. She, uh, took off. That's where you came in. No, that's where you come in. Huh, fat chance. There's no way you'll talk Colton to going to Mexico after some girl. Ah, comedy gold. The lady cult is asked to find is Murray Connors. And if she looks familiar, despite this being an audio medium, it's because it's Lindsay Wagner. Yes, Jamie Summers herself is popping by to give the third season opener a touch of the class I mentioned earlier. As with loads of show of this era, there is a lot of padding in the opening part of the show. Sure, the scenes with Howie and Colt are nice character beats, but there's a lot of shots of the truck driving to Mexico and that old standby for 80 shows, the overlong country music montage. There are entire scenes of the truck driving down dusty roads to a country backing, normally a song I've never heard of. Once Colt and Howie arrive in Mexico, it's populated by a shit ton of Mexican stereotypes, and the village itself looks suspiciously like a redressed backlot. Colt and Howie find Murray remarkably easily, and we get to marvel at how much Major's aged between these six years since Six Mill finished and this episode heard, in comparison to how remarkably well-preserved Lindsay Wagner is. Of course, Ms. Wagner was probably my first TV crush, so I'm inclined to be a tad more favourable to her. I like a pretty blonde, what can I say? Colt, of course, knows Murray, something he kept quiet, and it turns out that, like Steve and Jamie, they were high school sweethearts. Now, I've got to be completely honest here, I didn't buy this in 6 mil when I rewatched them a few years ago, and I certainly don't buy it here. Wagner was 10 years younger than Majors, but looked as much as 15 years his junior, even in 6 mil. Here, the age gap, even though it's quite slight as these things go, is even more pronounced. I'd have probably bought this a lot more if they'd said they were college sweethearts rather than school sweethearts. Maybe Colt was taking some night classes a couple of years after he'd completed high school. That would have fit a little bit better. Granted, Lee Majors has lost his pretty boy looks of old and is actually looking more rugged here. Although I'm led to believe from my wife that that makes him better looking than he was in 6 mil. So, what do I know? I never claim to be an expert on which men are good looking. Dialogue is pretty good, implying the actors were allowed some leeway with it to make it more believable and realistic. Either that, or Majors and Wagner's understandable chemistry comes to the fore. By the commercial break, Colt, Murray and Howie are in jail, because that's yet another part of the Fall Guy template, and the banter between Colt and Murray, whilst not on the level of moonlighting, is still pretty good. Wagner always was a naturalistic performer, capable of giving her scenes a believability that made the audience empathise with her no matter what. Oh, hey, look! That's Lost in Space's Mark Goddard as the bad guy! The Fall Guy had a lot of stars of yesteryear, and it was nice to see them gainfully employed. Anyway, Murray stands up to some Mexican scumbag who wants his wicked way with her and is sentenced to Devil's Island, a hellhole of a place that Colt vows to rescue her from with the aid of a bunch of stunt types. How he is to find Murray, and to do this, he needs to get arrested. Hi, how tough could that be, huh? <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh yeah, that's funny. How about that? <laughs> I'm attacked. Go for another laugh. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, don't tell my superior. I am on probation. They will dismiss me if I have a fight with an American. I have six children at home. I was fined heavily. I have no money. My children, they are hungry. 
They will starve if I am dismissed. Please, you cannot do this to me. Gee, I, I'm sorry. I don't want you to get into any kind of trouble. Just take it easy. I won't tell anybody. Thank you. You have saved my life. Yeah, well, go buy some more milk and go on home. I can't. I have no money. What's the matter now? Inflation. Howie eventually manages to get arrested and Colt sets about outlining his plan. This midsection moves along at quite the clip, making me think that this may have been better as a two-part opener. In but a few minutes of screen time, Murray is sentenced and sent to Devil's Island, Howie likewise, and Colt makes it back to LA, rounds up a posse, and then returns as Howie breaks out of his own cell and tries to help Murray. Whilst the brevity is appreciated in this age of padded Netflix shows, some breathing room might have been nice. Lip service is made to the inherent problem of a bunch of American civilians invading a foreign country, but this is the fall guy, so let's not concern ourselves with that too much. After all, the A-Team did this every week and no one give a shit. It's an all-action breakout and it's nice to see Jodie involved in an action-based capacity and not sitting around looking frightened like Amy Allen did. Colt and co. attack the same mock Mexican base that has doubled for foreign prisons in everything from Erwolf to MacGyver and, you guessed it, Murray and Colt get separated from the rest of the team in the ensuing battle. Didn't see that coming, did you? Well, if you didn't, you're missing out on yet another staple of the Fall Guy story template. As per usual, Colt's stunting is no match for trained mercenaries and military personnel, and he grabs Murray and they leg it in a truck as the team escape in a chopper. Someone actually says, get to the chopper at one point, although it isn't as iconic as in Predator. Of course, Colt has prepared for this eventuality. You want to take a ride? Sure, I'd love to take a ride. It's a water bike. I brought it along as a backup. It'll carry both of us. Come on, give me a hand. Oh. Well, help. I'm trying. Okay, you ready? You gotta be kidding. No, no, it's a cinch. Right, if you're an eagle. Oh, come on, I did it once and Butch cast him to Sundance Kids. See, I was Redford. Well, take another look. I'm not Newman. Oh, come on. Just yell all the way down. Why? I don't know. It's what we did last time. With Colt and Murray free, they managed to avoid the Mexicans long enough to pick up some clothes and steal a dune buggy. Colt and Murray catch up on what they've been up to since high school, and they rekindle some old feelings, just as they are located by the Mexicans. It's then a dune buggy versus helicopter chase for the final action scene, and this is again really well done. If this footage is nicked from somewhere else, it's well integrated into the shots of Majors and Wagner. If it's new footage, it's quite impressively mounted on a TV budget, especially for a show of this vintage, and there is little in the way of poor rear projection. Colt and Murray run out of gas, but not before Colt happily kills the helicopter crew tailing them. Because the show probably couldn't afford to blow up a helicopter, they use that old standby of having the helicopter disappear behind a mountain and then a ball of flame appear above the mountain, implying that the helicopter has crashed into the floor, when in fact it probably just flew off safely. Colton Murray then wrap it all up. 
cold. I was afraid you weren't going to show up for the last shot in the picture. Well, you know, I've never missed a stunt. Yeah, well, after two weeks, we were beginning to give up hope. You know how it is when you're talking over old times. Yeah, I know how that is. In fact, that reminds me of a time that I was in Wyoming with cold and we got stuck in a uh, snow... Kid, that's not the old times we met. I guess I'm going to be off now. Where to? Uh, Oklahoma. What for? My teaching credentials. Well, they've been gathering dust long enough, I think. Well, that's so far away. Yeah, it is. Too bad you're not going to be around anymore. Yes, it is. Uh, we all have to stumble to the sound of our own drummer. I thank you. Thank you. You know, it's been a long time since high school. You still throw the best pass I have ever seen. Colton Murray have apparently spent two weeks together reconnecting, and it's a nice touch that Murray is off to be a teacher, since that's what Jamie did. Sadly, she'll never be mentioned again and nor will Ms Wagner reappear on The Fall Guy, which is a real shame, as she and Majors have an undeniable chemistry together, as proven by how many times they have purred up over the years. Both actors would reunite for three reunion movies for the bionic characters subsequent to this, in 1987, 1988 and 1993, and have recently appeared in Fuller House together. There's also a later episode of The Fall Guy where Colt goes to his high school reunion, and sadly, Ms Wagner is nowhere to be seen there either. The Devil's Island is a pretty textbook episode of The Fall Guy, divertingly entertaining but with little of substance. It's a show designed to provide people with an hour of lightweight fun and escapism, and on that level it works magnificently, although under normal circumstances, I'll bet you've forgotten all about this an hour later. This episode is more memorable than most for bringing back our bionic heroes and it's nice to see them both looking good and picking up their relationship where they left off with the story making a few allusions to their days as super cyborgs. This is especially pleasing for long-time bionic fans as the switching network for the bionic woman meant we were denied one last look at them in those shows. Lee Majors would bring an end to the Fall Guy himself, feeling burned out after headlining two popular shows over a 12-year period, but he hasn't been out of work since. After a memorable cameo in Richard Donner's Scrooged, Majors followed up the Fall Guy with further series regular gigs on Tour of Duty and Raven in between 1990 and 1993, but this time edging himself into the elder statesman roles. Douglas Barr wrote the 1993 telemovie The Cover Girl Murders and employed Majors as the lead, which saw him work with the Highlander himself, Adrian Paul. Then it was back to guest star roles before he landed, rather improbably, in a British sitcom called Too Much Sun in 2000. Over the past two decades, he's finally embraced his role as Steve Austin at conventions and in television adverts, as well as parlaying his rep into appearances in Jake 2.0, Robot Chicken, Human Target and Family Guy. Further regular gigs in the remake of Dallas, G.I. Joe and Weeds followed in the 2000s, most recently being seen as Bruce Campbell's dad in Ash vs. the Evil Dead. Now, 79 years of age, Major shows no sign of slowing down, and is in fact as busy as he ever was. Maybe he really is bionic. Lindsay Wagner likewise continues to appear in unlikely places. She parlayed her fame into being queen of the TV movie, normally about strong women in dire situations, also headlining a number of her own series like Jessie and The Peaceable Kingdom in the 80s and 90s. 
A recurring role in Warhouse 13 has followed more recently, as well as gigs teaching spirituality. The Fall Guy is one of those shows. It's easy to watch and not too demanding, and it's entertaining in the moment, but all of the episodes blur into one after a while, and its predictability means it's not something that can be easily binged in this era of Netflix. As with all TV shows of the era, a reboot has been mooted, with the most recent rumours linking Dwayne The Rock Johnson to the role of Colt Seavers in a big-budget movie update. To be fair, a light comedy-drama version of The Fall Guy would work better than most, because that's what the original was. The Fall Guy is still perfect entertainment, should you want to catch a rerun with a beer and a pizza. Something tells me that Colt Seavers would be perfectly fine with that. Tomorrow night at 8, ITV4 goes blue and relives the 2012 Champions League to witness Chelsea's massive comeback. The next this afternoon, the silver scimitar of Bull Bull is in danger in Double Batman. Let's look at the email, should we? Dan Doherty's emailed in The War of the Worlds and Other Glittering Delights. Hello, Andy. Hello, Daniel. Over the past month or so, I've decided to go through the back catalogue of the palace, listening to all the episodes I hadn't heard yet. This will be the first of several emails detailing my thoughts on past shows, starting with The War of the Worlds. I look forward to that. I like... I, I don't have a m- m- moratorium. Is that the right word? On, on that kind of thing on this show. If you've only just listened to episode 10 and you want to email in about it, feel free. While I have read The Time Machine, continues Daniel, I almost hate to admit I've never read H.G. Wells' original War of the Worlds. I know, I know, I need to get on it, but I'm a bit of a procrastinator. I've been wanting to sit down and watch Dr. Strangelove with Peter Sellers since I was a freshman in high school. And that was 18 years ago. Much of my familiarity comes from the 1953 George Powell movie, which I have a lot of fond childhood memories of. I was born on Halloween, and we always had my birthday party on either the Sunday before or after October 31st, unless Halloween was on a Sunday, then it would be earlier that day before going out trick-or-treating. As an annual tradition, one of our local channels, WSBK-TV38 Boston, used to air the 1953 War of the Worlds at the same time. For years, whilst waiting for all my grandparents, aunts, uncles and cousins to show up and sing Happy Birthday, Eat Cake and Finally Open Presents, the War of the Worlds would always be playing in the background. I can still remember specific birthdays and what I got that year when watching certain scenes from the film. As with the Captain Scarlet film, you've inadvertently solved another musical mystery of mine. When I finally got my first CD player in 2003, one of the earliest CDs I bought was science fiction movie themes by Laser Light Digital, a compilation album of electronic synthesizer cover versions of Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. and two different versions of Jerry Goldsmith's Star Trek The Motion Picture theme. There were also a couple of oddities. I have no idea where Rampatruel Orion is from, or how to pronounce it for that matter, and the Close Encounters track doesn't remind me of any of John Williams' score for that film. The last track was War of the Worlds. Despite really liking it, I wondered where it came from. Imagine my surprise when you covered the 1978 War of the Worlds album and I heard the exact same theme. One notable difference between the two is the chorus. 
The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, but still they come. Do 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 do. Ba ba ba. Do 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 do. Anyway, sorry. Dan continues. The original version has the line "but still they come," but in the cover version, it's "but still they came." Maybe it's because I'm so used to that CD version, hearing come instead of came really jumps out at me every time. One thing is certain, I definitely want to track down that 78 War of the Worlds album you played. It sounds absolutely amazing. It is. It's now, since I recorded that episode, and obviously we've had the resurgence of vinyl, it's back available as a double album with that gorgeous gatefold cover that I just used to pore over as a child with all the wonderful artistic interpretations of, of what's going on. Also, something that I think is worth of note, again, I think I did mention it in that episode, but it was such a long time ago now, with the HG Wells rights now going into public domain, the BBC are apparently filming a War of the Worlds TV adaptation that will be faithful to the book and actually set in the Victorian era and... If what I've read is correct and plans haven't changed, that is scheduled to her in the new year. So I, I very much look forward to that because like, I don't mind the 1953 movie and I love the 1988 TV show for different reasons. But I'm, I'm, and the 2005 Tom Cruise movie, I don't mind that either. But I always feel that we've been gypped by not having a proper adaptation of war of the worlds we got a proper adaptation of the invisible man it was great and frankenstein and god knows how many bloody adaptations of austin novels there are that are faithfully done but they always seem to feel the need to update war of the worlds and i, I just want to see a faithful one and see if it works if it doesn't well the next one can be saying contemporary times again can't it anyway Dan continues, speaking of playing music, I thoroughly enjoyed all your top tunes episodes. There was a lot of interesting choices and it's nice to know I'm not the only one who'll fall in love with a piece of music without ever seeing the TV show or movie that it originally came from. That's all for now. Sincerely, Dan Dirty. P.S. Whatever happened to the top 10 original Star Trek series incidental music episode of the palace? Uh, it's just one of them that fell by the wayside, mate. That's, that's all I can say. I did have a few little notes for it that I've and it was it was one of those that was going to happen and then other things came along and it just fell down the pile and and it just never happened I'm afraid I do have a Star Trek episode coming up for the 100th episode of this show though more on that closer to the time thanks Daniel thanks for emailing in very much enjoyed that I love War of the Worlds one of my favorite things War of the Worlds Erwolf uh, Ermut is Chris Franklin hello Christopher hello Andy I never saw the fourth season of Erwolf if it was on one of the local channels in the days of endlessly poorly made syndicated shows, I missed it. The fact that Barry Van Dyke was the lead on this and the Galactica 1980, the cheapo revamp of Battlestar Galactica, makes him the Ted McGinley of sci-fi action, I suppose. Thank goodness he got that long run on his dad's diagnosis murder show. It's odd to say I enjoyed the feedback section, but I did. Your insight into Ryan's Marvel list was quite intriguing. I don't know what my list would be like now. I still need to get Infinity War on Blu-ray. I love the film, but I so deeply soaked it in the two times, or was it three, I saw it in the theatre. I haven't felt the need to see it again quite yet. But the need is growing, Chris. I watched it again after it came out on Blu-ray and thoroughly, 
enjoyed it. It's such a good film. So good. Uh, I'm hoping they don't drop the ball with the part two, or whatever it ultimately ends up being called. I have faith in them. I don't think they will. Finally tonight, Keith Mason's emailed in. The embarrassment of glittering riches. Like, Dan, he's also going back over uh, a bunch of episodes. So let's delve in, should we? Hello, Andy. Hello, Keith. It's been a while since I've emailed in because every time I have time to write an email, you keep producing another excellent episode that I have to listen to first. Do you not sleep? So it's another long-winded look at some of your recent episodes. Well, I say recent. Brand new day. I have a spotty relationship with Spider-Man collecting. I jump in and out and never stay for too long, and often my favourite Spider-Man are those that aren't Peter. I've been doing a blog-related read-through of the Clone Saga, and I really enjoyed Spider-Man 2099 as well. I even have that version on my left arm. So my understanding of the character of Spider-Man varies wildly. So I walked into Brand New Day rather cleanly, with no real expectation of who the character should be, and went through the first 100 issues of that era of Spider-Man quite positively. Then, a couple of years ago, did a reread and... Damn, that did not age well. With the absence of character development, recycled villains and inconsistent writing of Peter, it was the brand new day with nothing really new about it and spent most of the episode nodding in agreement. Which probably looked weird. A guy walking his dog just saying, yep, yep, he's right there. We needed a fresh start for Spider-Man, but not this start. Yeah, it was weird that one. Because I honestly, I didn't go into that show to bury brand new day i went into praise it my memories of that era were quite positive and then i'm rereading them going this isn't really very good is it oh dear anyway keith continues blake seven at 40 i was always put off by blake seven it didn't have the longevity of doctor who but did have the shoddy effects and lack of pizzazz that 70s who had Based on your episode, I found the first three episodes on YouTube and watched them over the week during my lunch breaks. Damn, that show is dark. When the good guys are smugglers, thieves, killers and accused paedophiles, what does that say about the bad guys? The pacing does seem strange, but the second episode does give you the idea that months have passed since the London left Earth, but doesn't say how long it has been after Blake escapes onto the Liberator. I was hooked by the lack of Hollywood polish, with regular-looking folks as the main characters and the do-a-tone adding to the old drug-depressed people thing. This show was so far ahead of its time, and I started episode 4 on Friday. I think I will be carrying on with it. Thank you. Yeah, Blake Seven's great, mate. It really is. I mean, you know, some episodes are better than others, and like I said in that show, there are a number of episodes that are... 55 minute long that would have made great 45 minute episodes you know with a bit of trimming here and there but for the most part i i love blake seven i love its bleakness i love its doerness i love like you say that it looks like it's cast by regular people doing regular things you know there's no pretty boys in it they're all proper men and it's just a great show i really enjoy it i look forward to hearing what you think about the second travis i don't think he's as good as the first but you know to each their own rebooted again mostly agree with you reboots that work are few and far between often because the thing we want to recapture is how we felt rather than what it was we don't want to watch a new magnum we want to watch magnum pi as it was for the first time again and that's sadly not going to happen is it your idea of a starsky and hutch reboot was a fantastic one so good that it'll likely never happen still one for the fanfic writers eh Thunderbirds are go. I have both the original theatrical releases and will at some point get them out, if only to share them with my son. Thunderbirds kind of bypassed me, really. Captain Scarlet was different enough to stick in my head, and I remember Stingray getting a resurgence when I was younger to the extent that anything can happen in the next half hour lives as a meme in my head quite often. 
Maybe Thunderbirds is something I will rediscover rather than remember. Who knows? Erwolf 2. Until your podcast, I did not remember there was a fourth season of Erwolf. Maybe that's the point. Very few did. Three of the four main cast members were known to me. Barry Van Dyke being the cop in Diagnosis Murder, Michelle Scadabelli as Susan Francisco in Alien Nation, as well as that episode of Star Trek The Next Generation was in. But it was Geraint Wynne Davis that I remember from Forever Night, about five years after this, where he was a vampire working as a cop on the night shift trying to cure his vampirism. When I think about it, there was a lot of good sci-fi TV in the early 90s, more than we sometimes give credit to. I think there were as many underappreciated sci-fi shows of the 90s as there were action-adventure shows in the 80s. Yeah, I may I may start looking more into the 90s as we start whirring out um, the good stuff from the 60s, 70s and 80s. Certainly, there's Space Above and Beyond in the 90s. That was a really good show. And I, I quite like the first season of Sequest. I know a lot of people don't have fond memories of Sequest, but I, I certainly remember the pilot movie being entertained and i may have to see if i can find that out there of course was the x-files and buffy and angel and xena and hercules and uh there was yeah there was there was quite a lot of good stuff in the 90s lois and clark lois and clark was the 90s wasn't it quantum leap all good stuff speaking of highlander i loved the first movie but the rest are a little more than vain attempts to recapture something magical with increasingly poor returns the tv series whilst it has dated remains entertaining with my recent blogging endeavour, which you suggested I make its own thing, I've been watching first episodes and Highlander was added to the docket when I listened to your episode. It was interesting and entertaining, seems to be the only true sequel to that film, if we ignore the last ten minutes of the movie. It was fascinating that a show about decapitation couldn't actually show anyone being decapitated and had to get around that every single episode. I don't know if I'll carry on with it, but I'm glad you brought it up. And finally, Ramita Sr. on Spider-Man. You could never have had Spider without the legend that was Steve Ditko, but his was the run that had a specific time and place. If he hadn't left, would the book have been all it could be? Ditko made Spider-Man, but Romita kind of cemented the legend. It's his look of the villains and many of the characters that stayed iconic, and yes, it was a bit glossy in Hollywood, tarnishing some of the kookiness that Ditko peppered the strip with, but I've always preferred Romita's era. Yes, he took a while to get into the swing of things, please ignore the pun, but when he did, he produced a comic that was just as distinctive compared to everything else Marvel was producing at the time, and it was light years beyond DC's 60s output. Romita's Spider-Man was a Bronze Age comic well before the Bronze Age, and whilst not as important to Spider-Man's creation, I honestly believe it was important to his longevity. Dick Crow created a fantastic character. Romita took that character and forged a legend can't have one without the other and it would be a long time before another artist did anything as drastic again maybe even into the McFarlane era and that was what 25 years later maybe after issue 50 you don't have much else to say but I hope you do because I for one would want to listen since I've gone back to the start with Spider-Man I'm just getting up to the Ramita era myself yeah I touched upon this last time enough people have said go on go on you know you want to go on do a couple more Maybe a few more after that, and a couple more after that, and, you know, from Eater, you, you, you clearly want to do it. So I'm going to probably at some point do more from Eater Spider-Man. Well, that was incredibly long-winded, concludes Keith. I hope you and yours are well, and look forward to whatever you do next. Ta-ta for now, Keith. Still be me, so you don't have to. Uh, well, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone who emailed in today. Keith, Chris, Daniel, much appreciated. Next time on the Palace of Glittering Delights... I think I'm going to be looking at the new Magnum reboot. 
Let's see what we think of that, eh? Let's give it a chance, you know. It may be Battlestar Galactica rather than MacGyver. <laughs> God, that new MacGyver shit. Anyway, uh, as I've said before, new episodes of The Palace of Glittering Delights drop when I can be bothered doing them. You know, that's just the way it is. Uh, on 2TrueFreaks.com. But if you want to keep this show on the air, don't forget to use the link on the Amazon website, on the 2TrueFreaks website that takes to Amazon when you buy your crap. And that keeps the lights on. You want to email me, like Keith, Chris, or Daniel, uh, uh, Comics at virginmedia.com is the email address that I look at most often. Thank you very much for joining me. I'll be back next time. Remember, it's all going to be okay. It's all right.